Our scripture reading today is Matthew 6, verses 9 through 13. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. The word of the Lord. From time to time, we like to explain the why behind, we, why, the why behind the reason we do things here at Bethany Church. Why do we say this is the word of the Lord, thanks be to God together? Have you thought about that? Maybe if you're new, you're coming, you're like, this is so weird. Why do we do that? It's like so formal. Uh, we think there's value at Bethany Church at times in doing things together. So when we do that, and our scripture reader says, this is the word of the Lord, they're actually proclaiming to us and reminding us as a gathered people, this is God's word when they say that. It's not empty. It's true. This is the word of the Lord. And so we're reminded of that. And then as a congregation, when we hear that and we respond together, we're reminded that this word of the Lord is not just for me and Jesus, not just for I, not just for me. It is that, but it's also for all of us. And that's why we respond back together. Thank you, God. And so we mean that when we say that too. Of course, can something we do often become rote and, and repetitious and meaningless? It could with even the Lord's Prayer that we're studying, if we say it without the heart. But we say it back to God because we're actually saying together as one body, it is the Word, we believe it, and thank you for it, God. So it's fun to do that every, every once in a while and say the why behind we do things. That's why we do that here at Bethany Church. In our men's frontline study this week, we're going to begin our new book called The Knowledge of the Holy by A.W. Tozer, um, who used to preach out at Canby Grove. Did you know that? A.W. Tozer, kind of one of the uh, pillars of, of the church in modern years, used to teach and preach, I don't know how often, but uh, he taught out at Canby Grove. There's some pictures of him out there. Uh, the first line of this book we're going to start this week with our men is incredibly important and I think even relevant to our study in the Lord's Prayer, here's how he starts the book. He says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And by that, I think what he means is that if God is the most supreme, most important, and we are his creatures, what you think about him and what we believe about him and then what that means for us will drive your life will drive your heart, will drive your purposes, will drive your choices, will drive your loves and what you value. He says it's the most important thing about you. If you start a long journey, let's say and you were traveling by compass, which none of us probably do too much anymore, maybe out in the field, but you start a long journey on a, a compass. If you're off even by the slightest degree, a long time into that journey, you're pretty far away from your destination, aren't you? You, you're, you're off the course. You missed your destination, even if you're a fraction off at the beginning. Well, if you believe, I think, in a similar way, false things about God, it distorts and, and, and directs the course of your life off its true north, its true home, who God truly is. It's the most important thing about us. You might even say when it comes, what comes into your mind then, as we transition to our message today, what comes into your mind about God when you pray, I would say, is also one of the most important things about our prayer life. 
who we think God is. And so up to this point, the Lord's Prayer has revealed, it's even done that, hasn't it? It's revealed a lot about who God is. It starts there. We've seen He's a caring Father who knows our needs. He wants us to have a sincere and an exclusive and humble prayer relationship with Him. Last week it was the truth that God is our intimate Father, yet transcendent in heaven. Combination, we learned about that last week. And when we hit the pause button on our prayers, right at the start, a pause button, and remember His name at the beginning, it it shapes our prayer life. It it shapes our, our heart and our requests as well. We explored last week His name and His kingdom and His will and so Jesus in, in teaches us to begin the prayer by recalling and praising God for who he is. He is God. We are his creatures. Yet how foreign is that to our prayer life? We've been talking about this all through the series. I tend to jump right in. I just tend to jump right in. My needs and, and what's the, the tyranny of the urgent is the phrase, isn't it? What's on my list? What's challenging me? But when we pray this way and hit that pause button, by the time we get to our requests, we've been reoriented to reality. God is my Father, and I'm totally dependent upon Him. And so we'll look today at these final three petitions. We're going to look at them. Uh, These final petitions of the Lord's Prayer, and they're going to give us a clear picture, I hope, I pray, that you and I are absolutely dependent on our Heavenly Father for everything. And yet simultaneously loved enough that he actually provides it all for us. As we'll see these three requests, they really comprehensively cover all of life. All of life in these final three requests. The physical, the spiritual, and and, and even the eternal. Jesus sums up in these little phrases. And we pray them today and look at them today. We're going to look after each request at the heart change and reorientation it can bring about. So let's look at our first request. Let's take a look. Here's our first one as we move into the second half of the prayer. Give us this day our daily bread. We're going to call it this. It's a prayer that reminds us that the physical world and our smallest needs, they matter to God. Give us this day our daily bread. It's such a short, pithy, simple little phrase. But here's what it's meant to remind us of. If you're married, do you remember when you realized for the first time in marriage you were making the transition from yours to what? Ours. Do you remember that? It was abrupt, it was abrupt for me when that happened. Rob and I went from this is your car and this is my car and you go to your house at the end of the date. I go to mine. That's your bank account. This is mine. Until it wasn't anymore, right? This is our house, our bed, our bank account, our car, our TV remote, all those things, you know. It all became our. It's kind of shocking in life. It can be really abrupt. Well, the Lord's Prayer makes just as shocking of a transition at this point. We're talking about your name, God. Your kingdom, God. Your will, God, these lofty, grand, spiritual, exalted kingdom needs, and then we go, our daily bread. It's really abrupt. He begins with our bodily needs after all that? 
All this spiritual big language, he goes, our bodily needs, our physical needs in the physical world, after all that, it's, it's, it's wonderful, but it's a really humbling transition in the prayer. A humbling request that reminds us that from the moment you and I are born, from the moment you're born, you need someone, don't you? To feed you, to change you, to dress you, to teach you, to sleep and talk and eat and all of those things. The moment you're born. And even as we grow physically, bodily, we're still really tremendously needy. We don't always think that way. And sometimes we don't even like to think that way. How needy we actually are. How needy you are. I was reminded this week of this fact as I went out to GK Machine with some of our guys from the church. It's uh, out in Donald, big machine uh, shop, shops, many shops and machine, things they put together and make parts and farm equipment. I was reminded of that this week. All these massive, complex, precise machines run by, run, run by skilled men and women with this intricate software, all to make machines mostly for agriculture, for food, bread, you might say. Skills and intelligence that I, I saw and experienced that most of us probably don't have. And I was reminded again and shocked again to think of our lives and the integrated web of people from the engineer to the machinist to the welder to the farmer to the truck driver to the grocery store checker and the gifts and skills and people that God employs to bring now. And we're just talking just food now. We're not talking about water, electricity, all those things. Food from farm, from the farm to your table. We don't think that way. Do you see the checker at, at, at Cutsforth with that kind of dignity, that they're part of that web? Ron and Xander over there at Cutsforth are the hands of God to make you, sure you get your food without getting arrested. Right? <laughs> That's who they are. That's their role. They're without ripping off Cutsforth. Do you see the construction workers I was driving this week through Canby who holds up the sign, slow down and stop as the physical hands and presence of God keeping you from dying in a head-on collision? They're there. They have valuable roles. It's part of his grace. You and I, I was just reminded again, we're utterly dependent upon others for physical needs. We need communities. For life and work and, and, and safety even. So don't believe the delusion that the enemy would love for you to believe that there was ever truly now self-made man or woman. I'm not saying we don't work hard. I'm not saying that we rely on everybody for everything. I'm not saying that today. But what I am saying is that it's good to be reminded that we actually have no self-sufficiency in and of ourselves. We all need people. We all need each other. And we get deluded if we think we can live life Without others. That, this request is to remind us of that. How do we get our daily bread? For most of us, it takes a whole network of people to get it from the farm to our table. That's humbling, isn't it? But it's also really beautiful. Petition because it reminds us that we're absolutely dependent upon God and the way he does provide in the physical world through all these different people for us. 
through others, and us for some as well. He created us with daily needs. He didn't have to do that. He didn't have to create us with daily needs. Why do you think he did that? Or asked us to even pray for our daily bread. Because we've been talking about this all through this series. As parents even. Things that you know your kids are going to give you. Don't you love when they still come and ask you? Can I have a hug, Daddy? Are you going to tuck me in tonight? Well, of course. I've done it for 10 years. Of course I'm going to do it. Our father's the same way. He loves when his children come to him in prayer and even when it's down to something as small as our daily bread. Not only that does he provide them, but do you know he actually cares? Do you know he cares about the small physical needs you have? We doubt that sometimes. That's one of the places the enemy likes to get us the most. Like, is God really concerned with me? Here's what Jesus said. Not two sparrows sold, and are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. The hairs of your head, Jesus said then. Fear not, therefore, you're of more value than many sparrows. So we're encouraged to ask. Because don't you carry much more value than a sparrow? There are some in our culture who would tell you, that you don't. You do. You're made in God's image. He crafted you uniquely to be you. So if the sparrow is valuable to him, how much more so are we, Jesus said. He knows even, and he's numbered every hair on your head, and he could even tell you where every hair has gone that's fallen out since it left your head. (laughs) He knows the history of your hairline. Think about that. That's, that's radical that he cares that much. Why is that? It's because of the character of the giver, our Father. Jesus said also in Matthew this, which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Who would do that? Or if he asked for a fish, you'd give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those ask him. There he is, the Father in heaven. He's the centerpiece of our prayer. This is how Jesus is describing him. If you know how to do it, won't he as well? To ask for daily bread then, what is this petition then? Is it just bread? Is it just for the bread and our food on our table? It's more than that. It's permission to ask for anything in your life that has to do with your care. Physical, in particular here, Food, health, rain, house, children, wife, husband, family, good government, church, first responders, construction workers that hold signs, all those things that keep you safe and provide for you. It's permission to pray for those and to ask God for them because they're all from him. But sometimes don't you wonder, don't you have that little even seed of doubt? Does he? I mean, is he really concerned with my daily needs? I mean, you don't know. I'm living paycheck to paycheck, Pastor Jeff. And he's really that concerned? If he's that concerned, I mean, we need to do something about that. Does the high and mighty God of your kingdom come, your will be done? Is he concerned with what goes on and can be in our lives? Well, just like the prayer descends 
and transitions from this grand and glorious spiritual kingdom stuff to the earthy, mundane piece of bread? Isn't that what Jesus did? Isn't that what Jesus did? Eternal God, creator of of, of heavens and earth, descends to a dusty manger in a real body to nurse at the breast of Mary. That's what Jesus did. The bread of heaven come to earth. It's a picture of the gospel. This glorious transition down to the mundane. That's what Jesus did. Philippians says it. In Philippians 2, you'll see it popping up. Jesus, he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in real, physical, human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Does he care about your small world of physical needs? He got dirty and dusty for you. He got dirty and dusty and down in it with his people for you and I. And he's redeeming the physical world too, we know. He took real hands of flesh and pressed them on a real physical wooden cross for you. He cares about your physical. And when we pray this way, and think this way, and acknowledge how needy we are, do you know what it does? It turns our natural temptation to grumble and complain and be discontent with what we do have into gratitude. It produces a grateful heart is our follow-up point. Produces a grateful heart. You'll see that popping up on a slide. In the human order of things, as we think now about bread and food and the comprehensiveness of life, in this prayer, we're looking at these daily needs. Does the prayer jump and point us to the fact that you actually do need more than bread for life? Can't live by bread alone, Jesus said, by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. And it jumps from our physical need to our spiritual need now. Remember I said it covers all of life, these three requests physical needs now to our spiritual needs of forgiveness. Here's our second request. Forgive us our debts as a prayer from our heart, hopefully, sincerely from our heart, from the heart of the gospel too, for the extravagant mercy of God to pay for, atone, cover, forgive our sins. If you got your Bible open, look down at verse 12. The verse actually reads this way. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors is the full verse there. We live in a world racked with debt, don't we? Racked with debt. From federal debt to state debt to student debt to credit card debt, and yet the world seems to kind of plow ahead and many times even as debt increases. So when Jesus comes along and asks us to pray this prayer, what is he asking? Do you know in the biblical world, debt wasn't just seen as an annoyance. It was 
seen as a punishable crime. We're, a different, we're talking different culture now. A punishable crime. Criminals for other, uh, other um, just infractions, other crimes, they were many times executed or they paid their debt by some other punishment. But if you wanted to get a family to pay back debt quickly, do you know what they did? They locked somebody up for debt. They put them in prison for debt. And so prisons were mostly full at this time of Jesus' culture of debtors. That's who was mostly in prison. So debt at this time was a matter of freedom or imprisonment, life or, or, or bondage. It was a serious crime. So when Jesus tells us to ask for forgiveness from our debt, he wants us to think in the terms of a serious crime that has a serious equal punishment. That's what he wants us to think of. And so furthermore then, to forgive then someone's debt, if it was a serious crime and deserved uh, time in prison, would be seen as a tremendous act of mercy. If you were to wipe someone's debt clean and say, it's gone. It was a tremendous act of mercy. Because it didn't just mean you could get another credit card. It meant you're, you're out of jail now. You have your whole life back. Your family's got you back. It's extravagant mercy, you might even call it. So in this request then, Jesus is highlighting your greater need, even than bread to sustain physical life, but our spiritual life. What is your need there? What do you need there? Forgiveness from our sins, he says. The great debt that we owe to God is what he's pointing it to here. This is what it means to be in debt to God. God who is holy, has perfect character, who has to act according to that character, has to stay true to it. When he looks at the brokenness of his world and the fallenness and the sinfulness of his world, he can't just kind of do a wink at sin and a nod. And kind of just tussle you on your head and go, all right, get back at it. Don't worry about it. If he's holy, if he's good, and if he's going to stay true to that character, he can't just do one of these, you know what? The whole thing's a mess. Let's just forget about it. That wouldn't actually be a good God either, would it? Who didn't care how his creation acted, who didn't care how they treated one another, didn't care that sin, like a cancer, was eating his people from the inside out, and he's eh. That wouldn't be a good loving God either. If that was the way he looked at our debt. Can you imagine a God who says he loves his creation, but then never holds any of that creation accountable for the wrongs that it did? We wouldn't run a family like that. You wouldn't run a business like that. You wouldn't run a school like that. Eh, why would we think that the God of the universe would not care how his people, his children, his creation acted and treated one another? An indifferent God would be the absolute opposite of a loving God. Because hate is still concerned with someone. And in fact, some uh, anger is, comes out of a place of, and God's good anger, a place for really caring that sin is destroying people. So the opposite of love is not actually hate. It would be a God who's totally indifferent to what we did. And that's not the God we see in the Bible. He cares deeply about what's going on on earth. He created and made it. He's overseeing it. 
because of that and who he is, we owe him a debt. But he loves us. And so he knows we have the debt and then decides and desires to take care of the debt too. So what does he do? He demands the debt be paid. He has to. He can't just wink and nod, as I said, and go, oh, he tussles on our hair and gives a kick in the behind as they get out there. He's got to take care of the debt. He demands the debt be paid, but he provides the payment too. Romans 3.23 says this, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, I think in 24, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Christ becomes the atoning debt payer. So God is just. He keeps his name. I have to make the debt be paid, but I'll also be the one who pays it. He becomes the justifier too. That's what the verse is teaching us. That redemption comes through Jesus Christ. Not only does he demand the debt, he decides to pay it for his people. And he lived the perfect life, fulfilling the demands of the law. That's Jesus. And when his work is received by us, when, when we repent of our sinfulness and accept his work by faith, it's received by us. But some Christians have looked at this prayer and said, well, then why do I have to keep asking for forgiveness? If I've been forgiven, if I've accepted Jesus' payment, why do I need to keep praying this? It's true that if you're saved through your initial asking of forgiveness and God works through that, you'll never lose that. He gives you a clean slate. And yet the message of the gospel is not just humbling that first time. It keeps humbling us through life. If you're a true follower of Jesus Christ, here's what happens. The more you come to know God as Father and Holy Father, but loving Father, the more safe and freedom you have to actually look at the depth of your own sin. You know you're secure. You know he's died for you. You know you have that forgiveness. So over a lifetime then, what happens is we grow in our understanding of his holiness, but at the same time, we grow in our understanding of our own sinfulness. But you know what stands in the middle of those two lines when we do that? The cross of Jesus Christ begins to loom larger and larger in our minds and in our hearts. And we see our ongoing need and acknowledge those sins and receive true forgiveness from Jesus. John knew it. He wrote it in his first letter that there's this ongoing need to see our sins and repent and bring them to, to Christ, to God. Not for a first-time forgiveness, but he says if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And when we do that, forgive us our sins. Forgive us our debts. Jesus is kind in mercy to bring again the sweet truths. If I said, as I said, the cross, the middle of those lines, the sweet truths of the gospel again, to bear on your heart again. As we have daily need of bread, we have daily need to go back to what Jesus did over and over again. Not to beat us up. He doesn't want to beat us up. He wants us to grow in our absolute overwhelming heart love, softening heart love for Jesus. That's what he wants. That's why he says, daily come back and say, forgive us our debts. He says to us in that moment again, I died for that too. 
I died for that too. You're my forgiven child. You have my mercy and forgiveness. You've got it. Here's a quote I love from Richard Sibbs. And you can keep coming back. He says, there's more mercy in Christ than sin in us. That's what we know. He's an old Puritan guy. There's more mercy in Christ than sin in us. It's humbling, but in a life-changing, beautiful way. Because when you pray this, here's what it does. It makes us forgiving people too. It produces a forgiving heart. Produces a forgiving heart. So the verses don't say, which some have struggled with, the verses don't say forgive us our debts because we forgive our debtors as if we could somehow earn our forgiveness by being a really forgiving person. Some have kind of looked at that and struggled with these verses and come to the conclusion, well, God's only going to forgive me if I'm a really forgiving person. As if God was saying, if you only would have forgiven one more time, I was going to forgive you. It says, forgive me as I forgive, not because I forgive. Or or, is in the same way I forgive, God forgive me. And what Jesus is saying here to us is there is a very close connection, a paper-thin connection, actually nothing between it, a connection between being forgiven by God and being a forgiving person. Being forgiven by God and being a forgiving person. Look, he repeats it in verses 14 and 15 right after the prayer. Let's read them. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. He repeats the same idea. And we know as we look at Scripture that Jesus could not be saying to us, to be a forgiving person means you are earning the forgiveness of God. But they're so closely tied together. To be a forgiven person and truly know and understand that and to know the massive debt that has been wiped away by God from your slate will, will always, always make you into a forgiving person. As we see how trivial in comparison even the most severe wrongs done to us are when we think about our wrongs against a holy God. That's what Jesus is saying here. It's one of the ways you can test your salvation. Are you unable to forgive certain people in your life? Do you remain stubborn, obstinate, cold-hearted to those who've wronged you? Those who truly know forgiveness, by God's grace, forgive others. And if you look at those questions... And you realize, I'm not. Then I would encourage you to look at your own forgiveness. And maybe even think, maybe I'm not forgiven. It's, It's serious. It's heavy words. But Jesus is saying, they're that closely tied together. That a forgiven person will see a forgiving heart produced in them. Does that mean perfectly? No. Does that mean we still don't struggle at times with forgiveness? No. But the long pattern of our life and the heart's desire we should have is that God will continue to soften us towards those that have wronged us because look at what he's wiped clean from me. That's what it is to pray that. Jesus emphasized this over and over again throughout his ministry. Look at your life. 
If you're not a forgiving person, you're not forgiven. Over and over again, he emphasized it through different parables and stories. Look later today if you want to think, is this really true? Look at Matthew 18 later today. The parable of the unforgiving servant who was forgiven thousands of dollars and then a dime he wouldn't forgive from somebody that owed him a debt. Consider it. To know the gospel, to know Jesus, to know you're forgiven produces forgiving hearts in us. Well, we begin with the physical needs to the spiritual needs, but now we go to the future, the eternal. Remember I said it covers all of life, these three requests. We go to the final request that covers uh, our future, our ongoing needs. It's this. Lead me not into temptation is a prayer that acknowledges the ongoing reality of internal and external temptation to sin and the need for deliverance from a real enemy. This ongoing kind of battle we're going to talk about here to close today. You with me? You ready? Hit this final request. This final third one. Jesus said in Matthew 26, 41, he said this, Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Be alert. The spirit indeed is willing, he went on, but the flesh is weak. And here the words are familiar. Lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil. Or as many commentators think, the evil one. Satan there, we're going to talk about. Temptation. What is it? It's the, it's the pool. It's the heart's desire. It's the, the gravitational force that yanks us towards sin. It's everywhere, isn't it? <laughs> it's everywhere. It's inside us, our hearts. It's outside us. It's, you know, flip on a TV or, or pass something or look at a billboard or, or a conflict you have with someone. It's inside. It's outside. It's everywhere. Growing up in Florida, it was just a known fact that lurking under many water surfaces could be an alligator. He just knew it. He grew up there. I, I saw many when I lived there. I was only there five years, six years. So hidden beneath the surface and sneaky and deadly at times and dangerous. And even so, we'd swim. People would ski, people would wade into the water, and, but it was every so often you'd hear of a tragic story. Maybe you're in the, reported in the news that an alligator from a sneak attack was under the surface and came and, and got somebody. But most people lived and swam with the illusion as that there was no real danger. It just wasn't there. And granted, it was pretty rare. But our sinful temptations are not that rare to live with the illusion as if they're not real. Like that lurking alligator below surface. Jesus needs to remind us, I think, because too many of us live under the illusion, or can, that sin is not crouching at our door waiting to master us, as God said to Cain. He warned him, sin's crouching at your door waiting to try and enslave you, Cain. Like an alligator just under the surface, Sometimes of our own hearts, right there. Or maybe we live sometimes with the illusion. It's a lot of times as Protestant evangelicals in the West, we live with this illusion that we don't actually have a real enemy or many enemies. The devil. You say that where people think, you're crazy. That's like a, they believed about that in the 1700s. Like, get lost. 
we can be kind of lulled into that as well because our culture wants nothing to do with the spiritual world. It's only what you can see. But Jesus knows better. And to pray this, he's reminding us that we have a real enemy who would love nothing less than to see you and I destroyed. Peter says it in 1 Peter. Be sober. Kind of similar words here. Be mindful. Be watchful of the tempter and temptations. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Kind of sounds like God's words to Cain, doesn't he? He's like crouching at your door. We can have this illusion that there's no danger. There's no real enemy. Now, you're not in danger if you're a child of God to be ultimately defeated by sin. You have the victory of Christ. But in our day-to-day living in our life of discipleship and, and our church's mission to help people follow Jesus, we can be lulled to sleep. That the danger is not that real. Ah, because it's been paid. And yes, it has. And the devil's been defeated. But Jesus is t- teaching this to ongoing disciples, this prayer. Pray this way. It's like thinking of not thinking there's temptation. It's like, like placing your bale of hay next to the fire, you know, as if there's no danger there in life. We can't live that way. It's an old movie now, but I was watching a couple weeks back uh, Dances with Wolves again a couple weeks back, and I'm sure most of you have seen it. It was a huge movie at the time in the 90s. But do you remember that scene in the beginning where the two sides are there fighting, the north and the south, and they're in the middle of a battle, and it's a, a life and death situation. There's, you know, there's soldiers there ready to go, ready to destroy each other. The threat is real. It's not lurking under the water. It's a musket across the field. It's real. Remember the Kevin Costner character? He's there in the trenches next to a, his fellow soldier having this conversation. Remember what happened? The next thing he turns over and realizes is the, the Kevin Costner character is, is jumping over on this horse into the field of battle in between these two sides. And he goes out on this horse, not to fight, but he goes up and he, he opens himself up in his arms, as you see in the image there, and he sits up tall on his horse as this easy target as they fired away at him. And everyone's thinking, he's crazy. What is he doing? It's a suicide mission. What is he thinking Going out in front of the firing squad with his arms up, no weapon, just riding there. But it's a picture sometimes of how we live the Christian life. How many times we put ourselves in harm's way, temptation's way, ride through life kind of oblivious as the bullets whiz by us, and the temptations of the enemy and the threats are real, kind of just obliviously sailing through thinking that I don't really need to engage. I don't really need to be alert. I'm good. We sail through. The thought could be, well, well I'm, a, I'm a Christian. I've got my fire insurance. I'm good. That's one way it might play out. Or I'm a Christian, but I'm not one of those kind of super fanatical ones. You know those ones? Or I'm a Christian, but you know what? The church bugs me. I'm just going to go it alone. I'm going to go it alone, you know? I'm just going to get out there. Me and God, that's all I need. I'm good. I'll be just fine. And we never think of the spiritual things, the practices, the disciplines, the church he gave us, the value in gathering in numbers rather than just going out in the field with your arms open alone. We miss those things. Temptation is real. 
We never think of those things. Or just pray even, my God, deliver us from the evil one. To pray this request is to pray for unbroken fellowship with God. To pray that the temptation and sin would not get in the way of that. It's to pray that God would deliver us and keep us alert, not like this in the battlefield, but alert. Be be watchful. Be sober-minded as we trust and rely on him to fight these battles. Paul thought they were real. He said in Ephesians, our struggles not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. We can slip into blissful complacency in the spiritual war over our souls and others. We can't do that, Jesus says. That's why we pray this. So if you feel complacent, if you feel disengaged, like kind of like this the Costner character and not aware of what's going on in your life, what do you do? Well, you begin by praying this prayer. You begin by reorienting your heart to this prayer. The whole prayer, too. But in particular, this part. You acknowledge again. You start there. Because when we do, here's what it does. Here's our final heart reorientation. It produces an engaged heart. If you think this way, if you pray this way, if you realize the real threat of an enemy, it engages your heart. You become engaged, not aloof on the battlefield on your own, the back of your horse. Engaged in prayer. Engaged in the Word. Engaged with the church. Engaged with the Gospel. Engaged with the power of God that will deliver you from the evil one as we pray, as we're prompted to pray here. And you don't ride arms high through. Carelessly oblivious to your own temptations or the real spiritual battle in this world, but you live with head bowed and life engaged, employing all the weapons God has given you And he has. He's given you everything you need for life and godliness, Peter said, for the true spiritual battle. Prayer being the main one. Prayer being the main one. You see how this covers all of life? Did you think, when I came to study this passage this week, did you think coming today, like, that the Lord in such, that's why he's God, in three little phrases he can give us an entire, our entire world of needs. And he answers them too. So let us be a praying people and go run to this prayer. As the disciples said, Lord, teach us to pray. Teach us to pray. Will you say it with me? Got it coming up on the screen behind. Let's say it together. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever.